1: Our program is brought to you each and every Monday through Friday, two hours a day. I know, some say that's a bit much. But the good good news is we can break it down into nice, easily digestible segments. And it's brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. Also by our good friends at HSLAMMO.com. Our friends at the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Pure-Light.com, and LifesavingFood.com. By the way, if you missed my conversation with Kendall Whiting, who is the founder or at least the he's the the proprietor behind Life Saving Food, great guy, great conversation. If you've been thinking food storage, I would say give these guys a shot, see what they can do for you and uh, you know, enjoy a little bit of that peace of mind in an otherwise uncertain world. So, I got a lot of stuff on the on the menu today, pun intended. We're going to we're going to cover a number of different things. There are a few random thoughts that I wanted to to throw your way. First and foremost, I am a stickler for uh, not getting mired in politics. And a friend of mine sent me a really interesting quote from Butler Schaefer. And I'm I'm not sure, but I think Butler Schaefer may have just passed away within this last year. But uh, one of my favorite contributors to uh, Lou Rockwell's amazing website. This is what Butler Schaefer said. You're going to understand exactly why this resonated so strongly with me. He said, you and I can bring civilization back into order by seizing political power, not, or neither by seizing political power nor by attacking it, but by moving away from it, by diverting our focus from marbled temples and legislative halls to the conduct of our daily lives. The order of a creative civilization will emerge in much the same way that order manifests itself through the rest of nature. Not from those who fashion themselves leaders of others, but from the interconnectedness of individuals pursuing their respective self-interests. Points that, that first line about if you want to bring order back into civilization or civilization back into order, you don't do it by seizing political power. You don't do it by attacking political power. You do it by moving away from political power. Now, typically, this will will bring, you know, a, a repost of, well, now, you know, but that political power is going to find you and it's going to make you do whatever it wants to. And that's I understand that's that's the nature of political power. It's about forcing people to do something. It's why every election essentially is just a decision of who gets to tell who what to do. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, it seems like a really unproductive way to To spend our effort, although there are times when we have to come together and we have to make decisions that uh, collectively will affect everybody. But even then, the number of people who participate versus the ones who uh, just want to be left alone. I mean, do, do we have do we really have moral authority to say, well, you may not have voted, but I voted and therefore you have to do because I was on the winning side. You have to do everything that I say. I don't know. That sounds a little sophistic to me. That sounds like justification for I've got to figure a way to make you do what I want you to do and somehow dress it up in legitimacy. Ah, the social contract. Well, by virtue of the fact that you live in this geographic area, that means you've agreed to the social contract. By the way, one of my favorite responses to that is show me the contract. Well, it's implied. Well, if it's implied, then uh, good luck enforcing it. Show me what I signed. Show me what I freely signed that gives you that kind of power. At this point, most people will dismiss you as a kook and they'll find somebody else to go talk to. But I do echo Butler Schaefer's admonition of, you know, focus on your own conduct first. People who do this will attest you have more influence than you think you do. Somehow we've been brainwashed into thinking, well, you know, the only place that a person can really have influence is in the voting booth. That's where your influence is best felt. That's one place where you can can use your influence, although there are other aspects as well. For some people, it may be participating in, you know, local town hall meetings. It could be uh, being an active part of what's going on within their city or their county. They might even be involved in party politics, but it's undeniable A person who is taking the time and suffering the inconvenience, if you could call it that, of living their life as a good person has influence. They will improve the world around them. And and more importantly, they will draw other people after them through the gravitational pull of their example. No, it's not going to be it's not going to you're not going to have the kind of crowd that you would see turn out, say, at a typical Trump rally because you did something good and you lived as a good person. It takes place at a much more grassroots level, but it's also a lot more authentic. And I mean, no no disrespect to those who really enjoy political rallies, but uh, I kind of got my fill of that in junior high and high school. We'd have pep assemblies, right? When there's a when there's a big game, hey, let's have a pep assembly, and we'd chant in unison, and we'd cheer and we'd boo, you know, the other team. And yeah, we uh, we all felt that, but it was artificial. And it's it's much that way with politics, too. So, you know, my advice is minimize your political footprint as much as you can. You'll find yourself happier. You'll find yourself less frustrated. But more importantly, you actually free yourself up, including your mental and your moral energy, to do things that make a difference in meaningful ways. And what those are, you know, that's that's going to be different from person to person. Some people are going to go out there and they are going to minister to the homeless. They're going to, they're going to tend to them. Some people are going to teach others around them. Some people are going to, you know, they're, they're going to, I don't know, build a patriotic sculpture, build something that, that brings beauty into the world. Everything seems like it, it starts out fairly beautiful until it gets uh, corrupted with politics. Then it turns into a power struggle but that's where we find ourselves today to the point where um you know we're repeating mistakes of other societies that came before us and most people can't recognize it because they're so consumed with politics they just they don't see it politics is all about being against the other it's less about what you stand for at least for most people because you don't have to really invest anything other than hey do you have some deep seated anger yeah yeah How about some hatred? Oh, yeah, I got that. Oh, have I got an outlet for you? See them? They're not us. You should boo them. You should throw trash at them as they walk down the street. Right on, and away they go. Oh, and here's a flag. Wave this while you do it. Notice I didn't say which flag because, you know, it it could be any other flag or any other virtue signaling device. Right. By the way, I did see I saw something today. I'm not a fan of flags or bumper stickers and things that otherwise, you know, proclaim I support this. I support that. And that's that's I'm not denigrating your country's flag. I'm just saying there are a lot of alternative flags out there, trendy ones that, uh, you know, make a great virtue signaling device, but uh, I I normally don't, I don't put bumper stickers on my car. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I might have to make an exception. I just saw a sign here that says, in this house, we believe the ATF is a criminal gang. Every gun law is an infringement. Taxation is theft. Socialism is evil. The state is a mafia. Property rights are everything. (laughs) Uh, I probably still won't do it, but I, but I do like the idea. So there. Now, here's another thing that uh, has weighed heavily on my mind, and that is I think there is a great deal of misinformation out there, and I don't mean it in the sense of anyone who agree, who disagrees with the, uh, the ruling regime. Why, if they're saying something contrary to what uh, our, our members of the political class are telling us, somehow, you know, that's bad. I don't believe that. But I did find a tidbit from Caitlin Johnstone. And as I've mentioned before, on paper, she and I shouldn't line up on very much. But I follow her writing regularly. I subscribe to her weekly emails. Actually, she sends out several a week. Because I found her to be every bit the truth seeker that I am trying to be. that doesn't mean we necessarily line up. But I think she's sincerely trying. And she's clearly paying attention. She's very unapologetic about what she sees. Therefore, I recommend her as someone who is driven more by truth than ideology. If you're looking for a straight take, she's got a good one. Here's an example of what I mean. She says, as total mass media blackouts on important news stories become more common, the challenge increasingly is not just obtaining newsworthy information about the powerful via whistleblowing investigative journalism, etc., but also finding ways to get that information seen by people, which is awful. But she says it also means people like you now play a much more important role in the media because you don't need to be an investigative journalist or even a whistleblower to find fun and creative ways to get important, critical information in front of people's eyes. Do you understand what she's saying? If you're tired of the lies, if you're tired of the misinformation, you want to help share truth and light, you can do that. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Please stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to mention uh,
1: Patriot Home Mortgage, particularly the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have them as sponsors of the show, and I'm going to ask you as my listener... To uh, do the honor of doing do me the honor of doing business with them, if you, for instance, are moving to Utah. A lot of people apparently are. So if you're looking for a home loan, contact Heather Turner at Patriot Home Mortgage 435-703-4522. I do have a link to contact her in the show notes at the BrianHydeshow.com. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and Heather's NMLS ID is 715 386 Or if you're in beautiful St. George, you could stop by 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2, and stop into Patriot Home Mortgage. Bottom line is, if you need to get things going quickly, because houses go quickly in today's real estate market, uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, these are the guys you need to talk to. All right, I was sharing with you a couple of thoughts from Caitlin Johnstone and even though she and i seem to be you know coming at things from a different angle we have different perspectives i love her truth seeking and truth speaking abilities i don't have to guess well what is she really trying to say she spells it out sometimes she's painfully blunt but i like it and one of the things she's pointing out here is as we look around us as we see total mass media blackouts on news stories that are important that are relevant but they're just not being talked about. Why? Well, because it doesn't fit somebody's narrative. At least somebody higher up the chain. So the challenge isn't just obtaining newsworthy information about what the powerful are up to. And we do have some great information out there. Thanks to people like Edward Snowden. Thanks to people like Julian Assange, whistleblowers, investigative journalists, etc. Glenn Greenwald and so forth. But she says it's not just that. We also have to find ways to get that information seen by people. In other words, to do a media bypass so that we can, can get the information to other people and in front of their eyes. She says those who can get people to actually see critical information are just as important as those who obtain that information. Because since the media won't report on it, getting it circulating online is highly important. And if you can do this, you're making a huge difference. So she says, find ways to distribute information by packaging it in fun and interesting ways to get it to go viral online or offline. You can use memes, you can distribute flyers, give talks, anything you can think of to open people's eyes to what's going on. And she says, you'll also be doing humanity a tremendous service. She says, all the journalists and whistleblowers do important work, but their work won't make a damn bit of difference if nobody sees it. So we can't all do what they do, but we can all help spread awareness in our own unique and creative ways. I'm sorry, but to me, that's a really positive approach to this. It's less waiting. Well, who's going to tell me what's going on? And more a matter of I'm going to do the best I can when I find good information. And by the way, I trust you to make that, that call. Is this solid information? Is it something that you know that you have vetted? If the answer is yes, then by all means, share it. Find ways to get it in front of people. The nice thing about social media is even if you're, you know, even if you're a little bit shy, you should still be able to do it. All right. One fun note here. Thought I would just pass this on, but it may be uh, maybe a little bit of a concern. There's a new crisis afoot. Scientists warn that within six months, humanity will run out of things to call racist. Why, yes, it is the Babylon Bee. How did how did you know the, the article says calling brand new things racist that no one would ever have thought could be racist is fun and everyone loves it. But as each new as each new day, people breathlessly inform us of the racist history of things like crossword puzzles and punctuality. Oh, and, and by the way, this is not satire. This part um, I saw two examples today jogging and manners at the table, not eating food with your hands. Also racist. Both of them. So (laughs) the trend continues, but scientists are warning that there's an impending catastrophe. Racism scientist Frank Green said at this current rate of coming up with new things that are racist, we will run out of new things to call racist by the end of this year. Anti-racism activists met this news with both fear and denial. Activist Brooke Snyder said running out of new things to call racist would be devastating. I mean, you only get attention if you come up with something no one else knows is racist. You can't just say things like ethnic slurs are racist. Everybody knows that. Now, Benny Malone, though, is one of the skeptical folks who's skeptical of the warning from scientists saying we should always be able to find new things that are racist. Just just watch me. He thought for a few moments and said, Ah, I've got a new one. Toothpaste is racist. But his face then fell as he said, wait, I have I've explained how that's racist already. Okay. well, anyway, we can't listen to science because we know for certain we've all told everyone that science is racist. Some proposed solutions to the impending problem include giving activists stringent limits on how many things per month they can declare racist. But this has proven unpopular. Another idea is to come up with new things each day to call sexist, but no one cares about that as much. I don't know where you stand on this issue, but as for me, I will trust the science. ba All right, moving on. Ever been accused of whataboutism? You probably have. Maybe you're aware of, of uh, what it consists of or what it doesn't. But uh, it's, it's worth noting that uh, it, this is a very real rhetorical tool. And there's a terrific article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This was written by Anthony Gill. What about what aboutism? He says in a recent social media exchange I was engaged that I was engaged in regarding the January 6th, 2021 Capitol protests, or insurrection, take your pick, accusations of what aboutism flew fast and furious. The discussion was prompted by a matrix meme showing planes hitting the World Trade Center in one quadrant and tipped lawn chairs in another. The gist of the picture was to illustrate how different people viewed the chaotic events that took place as Congress sought to certify the twenty twenty presidential election. Now, some folks saw it as one of the worst episodes in American political history where others just viewed it as another day in the life. He says, at that point, or at a a point, let's try that again, a point I made in the thread was that the actions of the protesters or insurrectionists, take your pick, were understandable given that protesters invaded Seattle City Hall on the invite of a council member just the summer before. Additionally, protesters in the same city occupied six city blocks and a police precinct for roughly a month, declaring an autonomous zone. I also noted the tumult in Portland that included setting the county government building on fire. Those statements prompted an accusation of whataboutism. Other individuals on the thread were also tagged with whataboutery for making similar analogies. So what is whataboutism? Well, it's an argumentative technique that seeks to draw an analogy between two or more incidents in order to mitigate the severity of one incident and it's also used to point out hypocrisy in someone's argument as the merriam-webster online dictionary notes what about is considered to be a logical fallacy because whether or not the original accuser is likewise guilty of an offense has no bearing on the truth value of the original accusation Squabbling siblings often report, resort to whataboutism to evade punishment for some wrongdoing. Why am I getting punished for egging the neighbor's house? What about when Billy drew on the walls last week? Not fair. Okay, fair enough, says Andrew Gill. Whataboutism probably isn't the best rhetorical technique to use in scholarly and non-scholarly discussions. But the increasing use of whataboutism may be indicative of broader political and social problems. He says, although counted as a fallacy in debate, understanding why people fall into the whataboutism pitfall may help us understand why people do the things they do. So in his case, he says, my point in noting the January 6th Capitol occupation was similar to recent events in Seattle and Portland was done in an attempt to understand why those protesters did what they did. He says, I wanted to get into their heads and see the world as they did. I was not attempting to justify their actions, but rather to explain them, as a good social scientist should. So to understand the use of whataboutism, he says, let's start with a basic social fact. The world is filled with uncertainty. Each day we're presented with decisions that have indeterminate outcomes. Naturally, people would prefer making decisions under less uncertainty. Got to pump the brakes here because we're up against the break. We'll be back in just a few moments. There is a link in the show notes at BrianHideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the
1: show. Please go to my webpage, page, BrianHideshow.com. There you will find my daily show notes with links if you want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the topics that I'm covering. Right now, I'm sharing an article from Anthony Gill. What about, whataboutism? Apparently, this was from a conversation he had online uh, concerning the events of January 6th. I mean, some people call it an insurrection. Some people call it a riot. I think that uh, I think it's been very politicized and is being milked for all the political advantage that some can get out of it. But I think he also has a great idea here about how we try to mitigate uncertainty. He says humans try to mitigate uncertainty in a number of ways, including relying upon social norms and or following legal and regulatory codes written by government. And if all these sources remain stable, the outcomes of our decisions become more predictable. Predictable outcomes also minimize disharmony and conflict. Now, consistent enforcement of violations of social norms and laws is critical for maintaining their stability and legitimacy. In fact, he says that's the basis for the rule of law. If violators of norms or laws are punished in a consistent manner, people will see these rules as more legitimate. They may not like the laws, but so long as enforcement is meted out fairly, individuals will typically accept the rule as is and seek to change it via peaceful conventional means. But if social norms and laws are enforced inconsistently, uncertainty results. And if some individuals or set of people are seen getting away with a transgression on a regular basis, others will begin wondering whether the rules no longer apply, including to themselves. So more rule breaking is likely to occur if one thinks that uh, enforcement is arbitrary. Now, alternatively, if some people are penalized for violations while others are not, especially if this happens frequently, resentment, anger and conflict will result. So to that end, whataboutism is a symptom of the inconsistent application of social norms and the rule of law. Now, of course, whataboutism could be invoked in a one-off situation. Perfect consistency in the enforcement of laws can't be expected as long as humans are in control. And there will invariably be a few outliers to which someone can point and say, well, what about that case? If it truly is a one-shot misapplication of the law, most people will not be too concerned. The bigger problem is when there is a large growing number of cases that whatabout, where whataboutism can be applied. So he gives some examples of recent bouts of whataboutism. He says selective enforcement, for instance, of COVID mitigation policies epitomizes inconsistency and bolsters whataboutism. Like when average citizens were asked to avoid indoor gatherings with non-family members, while the elites who made that policy felt comfortable dining in large groups at high-end restaurants. Gavin Newsom, we're looking your direction. Religious services were restricted around the country, as was attendance at weddings and funerals, but the public memorial of a national political leader drew a large crowd. Citizens were also told to shelter in place and restrict all but essential travel. These calls were often made by politicians and health officials who took trips to other states or even countries. Also applicable trips to Mexico during uh, disruptive winter storms. How about the case of wearing a mask in public venues, which was pushed as the new norm, unless you were a significant player in national health policy and attending a baseball game that the common folk could not attend in person or maybe a Republican fundraiser. Or protesters who were concerned about the losses of small business due to covid lockdowns were discouraged from gathering. While, on the other hand, large crowded marches protesting police injustice were allowed to, incurred, to occur rather on a regular basis. Now, that's not to suggest equivalency between the two causes, but he says, I do encourage readers to see the situation through the eyes of all parties impacted by different policies. What about all of that? High-profile violations of public health policies being imposed on the majority of citizens certainly fed the whataboutism beast throughout 2020 and beyond. In fact, he says one might argue that these examples were healthcare related. Therefore, they don't apply to the political protests that occurred in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021. And those actions were unprecedented in our nation's history. Okay? Anthony Gill says, what about the previous four years of never ending media stories about Russian interference into the 2016 election? Well, one might dismiss this what aboutism by noting it was the president who encouraged protests on January 6th. Those protesters could reasonably point to and ask, well, what about constant congressional hearings and independent counsel investigations to find impeachable offenses related to election malfeasance or anything else that could be dug up? All of this landed with a big dud and Congress moved into other territory to find impeachable offenses aimed at the president, all of which could easily appear as a never ending witch hunt. Now, Anthony Gill says, look, I'm not writing here to pass judgment regarding whether Trump was guilty or innocent in prompting the January 6th protest, nor to question the legitimacy of the congressional hearings into Russian interference. Moreover, he says, I should note that the hypocrisy that generates whataboutism is not the baliwick of one party. Elites across the ideological spectrum have shown a tendency to issue rules and promote social norms for the common folk while failing to live up to those standards themselves. And he gives example after example. He says, I'm just noting that there appears to be a solid basis for individuals to to think that standards being applied to them were not applied to others. If citizens are feeling increasingly bamboozled, it should come as no surprise. So an an increase in whataboutism is the canary in the coal mine if we are seeing consistency in applying and enforcing our laws breaking down. And as far as that canary in the coal mine goes, this bird is not looking all that healthy. So what can we do about whataboutism? Well, Anthony Gill says we can probably expect it to continue into the future. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, the number of laws and regulations continues to grow, making it more difficult for citizens to know and understand what their government requires of them. More importantly... Those in charge of monitoring and enforcing adherence to the law will also find it more difficult to apply the complex array of often cross-cutting laws consistently. Even the most well-intentioned policymaker and judge will find it difficult to adhere regularly to the rules imposed upon others. All the more fodder for whataboutism. Second, as government expands in its size and scope, the stakes of winning elections and controlling the levers of power will also increase If violating the norms and laws of our electoral system can give you a competitive edge, shenanigans are sure to arise. And once in power, the temptation to apply policy to benefit your cronies over others and enforce the rules selectively only grows. Now, Anthony Gill says, despite this gloomy forecast, I urge readers and fellow scholars not to jump too quickly to accusations of whataboutism, particularly when citizens are questioning the legitimacy of the government ruling over them. When the cry, of well, what about X, arises in argumentation, it's a good time to step back and evaluate the claim through the eyes of others. Now, it may be the claim holds no merit. Alternatively, it may open our eyes to bigger problems that we've failed to notice. So what about that? I thought that was a really helpful essay. And hopefully it's something that you can find useful and implement uh, in your uh, quest for truth as well. Hey, justice, by the way, is supposed to be free of political activism. In fact, there's, that's part of the reason behind the blindfold and the scales that uh, Lady Justice is seen holding in, in the representation of it. But when the system is beholden to politics rather than justice, we are in trouble. And Ron Paul pointed out recently that the January 6th show trials threaten all of us. Listen to this. The recent felony conviction and eight-month prison sentence of January 6th protester Paul Hodgkins is an affront to any notion of justice. It's a political charge and a political verdict by a political court. Every American, regardless of political persuasion, should be terrified of a court system so beholden to politics instead of justice. He says, we've seen this movie before and it does not end well. Worse than this miscarriage of justice is the despicable attempt by the prosecutor in the case to label Hodgkins, who has no criminal record and was accused of no violent crime, a terrorist. That was based purely on what he was alleged to have been thinking. As journalist Michael Tracy recently wrote, Special Assistant U.S. Attorney Mona Sedke declared Hodgkins a terrorist in court proceedings, not for committing any terrorist act nor for any act of violence, nor even for imagining a terrorist act. She wrote in her sentencing memo, the government recognizes that Hodgkins did not personally engage in or espouse violence or property destruction. She added, we concede that Mr. Hodgkins is not under the legal definition a domestic terrorist. Yet Hodgkins should be considered a terrorist because the actions he took entering the Senate to take a photo of himself occurred during an event that the court is framing in the context of terrorism. Now, Ron Paul says this goes beyond a slippery slope. He's not a terrorist because he committed a terrorist act, but because somehow the context of his actions was, in her words, imperiling democracy. In other words, Hodgkins deserved enhanced punishment because he committed a thought crime. The judge on the case, Randolph D. Moss, admitted as much... In carrying a Trump flag into the Senate, he said Hodgkins was declaring his loyalty to a single individual over the nation. Ah, that was his sin. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back
1: sharing with you a commentary from Ron Paul. Yes, the Ron Paul. Uh, one, of, one of the very few people who has held public office that I could actually say, okay, that guy was more statesman than politician. Not going to suggest he was perfect, but uh, closer than most have ever tried. And, and his take on how the January 6th show trials imperil all of us. It's well worth considering. I mean, you think about this guy, Mr. Hodgkins, who faces eight months in federal prison, not because he damaged anything, not because he threatened violence, but because he carried a Trump flag into the Senate while wearing a Trump T-shirt. And the judge said that, uh, well, he was declaring his loyalty to a single individual over the nation. No, he was he was declaring his loyalty to a single individual over a very openly Corrupt government, which is not the sum of the nation. It's one facet of the nation and not even that big of a facet. Sorry to hurt your feelings there, judge. As Tracy points out, while eight months in prison is a long, ridiculously long sentence for standing on the floor of the people's house and taking a photograph. It's also a ridiculously short sentence if this guy was actually a terrorist. Ron Paul says if Hodgkins is really a terrorist, shouldn't he be sent away for longer than eight months? He then reminds us that the purpose of the Soviet show trials was to create an enemy that the public could collectively join in hating and blaming for all the failures of the system. The purpose was to turn one part of the population against the other part of the population and demand that they be canceled. And it worked very well for a while. In a recent article, uh, Libertarian author Jim Bovard quoted from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago about how average people turned out to demand justice for the state's designated political enemies. There were universal meetings and demonstrations, even including school children. It was the newspaper March of Millions, and the roar rose outside the windows of the courtroom. Death, death, death. So while we're not quite there yet, we are moving in that direction. Americans being sent to prison, not for what they did, but for what they believe? Does that sound like the kind of America we really want to live in? And while many Biden backers are enjoying seeing the hammer come down on pro-Trump, nonviolent protesters, they should take note. The kind of totalitarian justice system they're cheering on will soon be coming for them. It always does. And by the way, if you say, well, I'm safe, I'm on the political right, just keep in mind that... uh, yeah, you're at risk too. Anything you allow to be done to those who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum from you can and will be done to you. This is one of the hardest tests of how committed a person is, how well they understand the principles and practices of, of freedom and how committed they are to upholding those principles and living those practices. Government has to be limited. It, have to, it has to be kept from mischief. It It has to be absolutely kept within its bounds. In fact, let's take a quick note here. Um, Lawrence M. Vance, this is a piece published on uh, the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, has a list of the seven deadly sins of government. I'm not going to go into great detail on each of these, but he really does a great job of outlining what government does that makes it so dangerous. Now, understand... Good government, limited government can be a blessing when it is actively protecting and defending your rights, your natural rights. That's a good thing. But in order to do this, what it means is government needs to butt out of your business, stay out of the way, let the free market work as it should, and not interfere with you or anybody else so long as their behavior is peaceful. Now, if someone is initiating force, if someone is initiating fraud or otherwise damaging another person's property, absolutely, they should be held to account. But be honest with yourself. Is that, does that sound like what government does today? No. Maybe by accident once in a while, but usually it's all about, now we've got to regulate people. We're going to make everybody better because of this, that, and the other. And we pass laws upon laws. 500 laws per year are at least proposed In many states. Quite a number of them get passed. What happens to all the old ones on the book? They kind of stay there. Yeah. The legal code gets thicker and thicker all the time. So here are the seven deadly sins of government, according to Lawrence M. Vance. Wage war. He says, if there's one thing governments do... It is wage war, and this has been true throughout history. The Persian Wars, the Punic Wars, the Gallic Wars, the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the Seven Years' War. I mean, he goes through this long, long list. War of the Spanish se- Secession, Napoleonic Wars, the French Conquest of Algeria, the Crimean War, the Sino-Japanese War, the Balkan Wars, the Mexican War, Spanish-American War, World War One, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the First Gulf War, the War in Iraq, the War in Afghanistan... And no doubt there's another one teeing up even as we speak of this. This isn't to even begin to touch on the various civil wars, revolutions, rebellions, conflicts, insurgencies, and wars of independence. Now, as painful as it is to recognize this, the U.S. government is no different than any other other government in history. They've never gone a decade without war. The only time it went five years without war was during the Great Depression. Most of the military operations launched since World War II have been launched by the United States. Look at our military spending and you'll see it dwarfs the rest of the world put together. If you can convince yourself, but that's all for a good purpose, well, more power to you. Because the people on the receiving end of that good purpose may just beg to differ. Here's the second deadly sin. Confiscate wealth. Although all taxation is government theft, the income tax is particularly onerous. Tax Freedom Day is the day calculated by the Tax Foundation when the nation as a whole has earned enough money to pay its total tax bill for the year. That day usually doesn't come until about 100 days into the year or later. How crazy is that? Americans collectively spent more on taxes in 2019 than we did on food, clothing, and housing combined. Here's another deadly sin. Redistribution of income. According to the late economist Dr. Walter Williams of George Mason University, tragically two-thirds to three-quarters of the federal budget can be described as Congress taking the rightful earnings of one American to give to another American, using one American to serve another. And this includes things like farm subsidies, business bailouts, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, and many other programs. Also, this is the next sin. Government has a tendency to monopolize education. In his book, The Problem with Socialism, published in 2016, economist Thomas J. DiLorenzo begins his chapter on education like this. Imagine the grocery industry was organized in the following way. Every residence is assigned by the government to the nearest grocery store in its neighborhood where it must purchase its groceries. There are heavy penalties for anyone caught shopping at an alternative grocery store. All groceries are paid with an annual lump sum tax collected by the local government. Anyone can then walk into his or her assigned grocery store, pick up whatever she wants, and local governments boast about the free public groceries. Now he continues the analogy. It's possible to shop anywhere, but one must pay twice, once with the grocery tax and a second time by paying cash for the alternative groceries. All employees of the grocery store are paid the same according to whichever seniority group they belong to it's almost impossible to fire a grocery store employee for any reason except criminality. Grocery store employees who are grossly incompetent and negligent are routinely promoted and If the grocery stores are so badly run that food rots on the shelves and their spending increase exceeds their budgets rather, or if the grocery workers go on strike, well they simply increase the grocery tax that's exactly the nature of the public school system in the u s and most of the world when it's operated, controlled, and funded by government. Here's another one of the deadly sins. Government has a tendency to criminalize vice. You want to read a great essay? Lysander Spooner's Vices are not crimes, a vindication of moral liberty. Eloquently contrasts vice and crime. Vice are those acts by which a man harms himself or his property. Crimes are those acts by which one man harms the person or property of another. Vices are simply the errors which a man makes in his search after his own happiness. Unlike crimes, they imply no malice toward others and no interference with their persons or property. Here's another of the deadly sins. Control prices. Rent control laws, sugar price floors. There's a long list of these things. And then the final sin, regulate everything. Probably don't even have to go too deep into that, but uh, regulation is deep and getting deeper. So Lawrence Vance says, so if government shouldn't wage war, confiscate wealth, redistribute income, monopolize education, criminalize vice, control prices, and regulate everything, then what should it do? And the answer is, as little as possible. In a free society, the functions of government in whatever form it might exist would be strictly limited to prosecuting those who initiate violence against, commit fraud against, or violate the personal or property rights of others and exacting restitution fr- from them. This is a great article. I hope it's worth your time. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take a read if you find it worthwhile. Feel free to share it with your friends.